Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Lindsay Burke. I direct the Center for Education Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. School safety has received renewed attention in the wake of the tragic shootings at Marjorie Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, and Santa Fe High School in Santa Fe, Texas. It is an issue, however, that policymakers have struggled to address for decades. And it's an issue that parents have had concerns about or just as long. Historically, federal policy has tended to do what it, it does. It tends towards centralized policies in an effort to improve school safety, while state-level policy has from time to time failed to capture other breakdowns in school safety, such as when a student is persistently bullied. When No Child Left Behind was enacted in 2002, there were efforts to address some of these issues. One of those efforts was something known as the unsafe school choice option. That option required states to, that receive federal funds and to identify schools that are persistently dangerous to allow students to then exercise choice if they were identified as being a school that received that designation as being persistently dangerous due either to chronic violence or to allow students in schools that across the board were persistently dangerous to exercise choice. Yet, just a year after No Child Left Behind was introduced with this unsafe school choice option, just 54 schools across the country out of 94,000 schools were identified as being persistently dangerous, with no such schools being identified in 44 states and Washington, D.C., which at that time in particular had serious issues with high levels of school violence. So it was a blunt instrument that needed reform. And at the same time, states needed to think about how they could better provide an exit pass to students who are in unsafe schools. And that's why we're here today, to have a discussion about possible options through both federal policy and state policy, and to get a better sense of the school safety landscape across the country. In addition to hearing about the research on private school choices impact on school safety, we'll also address federal issues, including Obama-era regulations that may have made schools less safe, and what state policymakers can do for children who are direct victims of school violence or for students who are in schools with high rates of such victimization. So we have a great panel to cover this important topic. First, we'll hear from Corey DeAngelis. He is a policy analyst at the Cato's, Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom. His research focuses on the effects of education choice programs on student achievement, 
and non-academic outcomes such as criminal activity, political and economic freedom, schooling supply, and fiscal impacts. And then we'll hear from Tim, ben Tim Benson, who is from the Heartland Institute. Tim joined Heartland in September of 2015 as a policy analyst and serves in that capacity in the government relations department. Prior to joining Heartland, Tim worked for the Foundation for Government Accountability as a senior editor and writer, and most recently co-authored a Heartland policy brief, Saving Chicago Students, Strike Vouchers, and SOS Accounts. Then we'll hear from Jonathan Butcher. Jonathan serves as senior policy analyst here in our Center for Education Policy at Heritage. Jonathan previous, previously served as the education director at the Goldwater Institute, where he remains a senior fellow. He was a member of the Arizona Department of Education's first steering committee for empowerment scholarship accounts, known as education savings accounts, and is a senior fellow with the Beacon Center of Tennessee. And he also serves as a contributing scholar for the Georgia Center for Opportunity. And then finally, we'll hear from John Malcolm, who oversees the Heritage Foundation's work to increase understanding of the Constitution and the role of law as director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. In addition to his duties here at Heritage, John is also chairman of the Criminal Law Practice Group of the Federalist Society. Please join me in welcoming our panelists. If we could pull up the first PowerPoint, thank you. Thank you for everyone being here on the uh, live stream as well. Uh, so I'm going to go over the scientific evidence as it relates to school choice impacting uh, student safety and then also how school choice can affect criminal activity. So the theory here is actually pretty simple. It's the basic Econ 101 theory that private schools must cater to the needs of their customers, that is parents and their children, um, and they have competitive pressures to do so. And parents value the safety of their children more than anybody else. Um, so parents aren't going to send their kids to schools that are not very safe. On the other hand, public schools remain open whether they're safe or not. Uh, so we'll go over this scientific evidence. I'm going to go over the most rigorous evidence, the experiments using random assignment and the quasi-experiments that can get at causal relationships as well. Um, and this is important so that we can actually tell that the school sector is determining the difference in outcomes that we observe rather than parent background or student background characteristics. So I'll go over the evidence. There's not a lot of studies. Um, there's about five related to school safety and four studies related to criminal activity. Then I'll also look at school shootings. Um, I'll be quick to point out that this is not the data used by the Federal Department of Education, which was found to be incorrect when they were checked by NPR. Uh, I think it was a 2015-2016 survey. They found like 230 or more school shootings in one year, and NPR ended up calling those schools, and actually only about 11 of them were legitimate shootings. I found about the same amount, but from 
2000 to 2018, so over a 19-year period. So it's more in line with the NPR estimate. So I'll look at that data. It's more, mostly suggestive because it's just an observation, but the other studies are experiments and quasi-experiments. Then I'll go into recommendations for policy implications. So it turns out if you uh, graph ice cream sales on the x-axis and uh, drowning deaths on the y-axis, you'll get something that looks like this. It's a positive relationship, right? So as ice cream sales go up, drowning deaths go up. The unscientific observer could look at this graph and say, wait a minute. It's a positive relationship here. We better ban ice cream or just tax it very heavily because ice cream is dangerous. It causes people to die. Uh, but this is not a very scientific approach. Can anybody guess what the omitted variable is here? Summer, yes, climate. When it's hot outside, you're more likely to eat ice cream because it tastes better when it's hot outside. And you're also more likely to go to the beach or go swimming at the pool. So it's not actually a relationship between ice cream and drowning deaths. It's a relation, the omitted variable here is temperature or climate, which is the uh, driving mechanism here. If you control for that, the relationship goes to zero. I bring this up because this is why it's so important to look at experiments and quasi-experiments. You want to look at the most rigorous evidence so that you can tell that it's actually the school sector causing the changes and outcomes and nothing else. So just like medical trials, which use random lottery to determine who gets a certain treatment or medicine, and they use random, the losers of the lottery get a placebo pill. Uh, in the medical field, they, can, they look at the differences in outcomes for these two groups, and since it's just random chance that one of the groups gets the medicine and one of the groups gets the placebo, medical researchers can determine the effects of medicine, and that's very helpful. With school choice, we have a similar um, random assignment mechanism. When more people want a voucher program or school choice program than there are slots available, the government uh, dictates that you must use random assignment to determine who gets access to the program. So you get another uh, experimental type of evaluation that you can do with school choice programs. So I'm going to be focusing mostly on those, but I'll also look at silver standard and bronze standard studies as well that control for a, a significant amount of factors. So here's the first table that I'll share with you. As you can tell, the right-hand column is all green. That's a good sign for school choice. The first three rows are experimental studies using random assignment. The fourth row is a silver standard matching study in Milwaukee. And then the last one is an observational study with a robust set of controls, which uh, is not as rigorous as the first three studies. Uh, but all these studies find statistically significant positive effects on student safety from getting the chance to go to a private school through a voucher program. So, for example, uh, most of these look at parent and student reports of safety. So, for example, the first one is the most recent federal evaluation of the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program. This is re released in 2018 by Dynarski and his colleagues. But he found that winning the lottery to attend a private school of choice significantly increased the likelihood that both parents and students said that the students were in very safe schools. This is about a 35 to 36% increase in the likelihood of reporting uh, being in a very safe school. So it's a huge positive effect on safety for those students. Uh, but then there's other studies. If you look at the bottom one, that's uh, by my co-author, uh, Denise Shaquille at Harvard University and I. This one is just an observational study with controls. We compare private to public and we control for percent of minority students and teachers, differences in income levels and school type, and a lot of other different types of controls. And we look at things like bullying, 
uh, robbery, theft, gang activity, and we find private school advantages for all of those types of outcomes as well. But the main picture here is that the experiments find that private school choice leads to more school safety, and the effects are all very large if you look at these studies. So, for example, here's the Dynarski et al. study in 2018, the most recent federal evaluation. This is about a 16 percentage point increase in the likelihood of um, uh, saying that the students are saying that they're in very safe schools and about a 20 percentage point increase in the likelihood that parents say that their kids are in very safe schools. If you do the math, if you're uh, very quick, you can do the 15.5 divided by the uh, control group and the 19.5 divided by the control group average, you'll get about a 35 to 36 per relative percent increase uh, in safety. And we can say that the, these effects are because the kid won the lottery to go to a private school. It's not because these kids were more motivated. It's not because their parents were more motivated. It's not because they came from better families, because everybody selected to get into the lottery. Um, so that's, again, why the experimental design is so important. Here's my study that I did with uh, Denise Shaquille. All of these are below zero, indicating a private school advantage after controlling for several different uh, characteristics of the students. But just for example, just to look at what these are actually saying, the first one is bullying. The private schools were about four percentage points less likely to uh, report having bullying in, that, in the most recent year, which was about the 2015-2016 school year. This is a nationally representative sample of about 10,000 private school principals reporting these incidents that occur in their schools. It's about a seven percentage point decrease in the likelihood of, I can't even see that, it's really small, um, physical conflicts among students, 11 percentage point decrease in the likelihood of uh, robbery or theft, 13 percentage point decrease in the likelihood of uh, racial tensions among students, and an 18 percentage point advantage related to having less gang activity in their schools. So these are all very large uh, out, uh, private school advantages, and none of them find none of these were a, a public school advantage. Only four studies link school choice to crime. Only one of these studies links private school choice to crime. That is the third one, the DeAngelis and Wolf matching study in Milwaukee. Only two of them are experimental. Uh, and these are both in charter schools, the first two studies, the Deming study and the Dobby and Fryer study. But for example, uh, the Dobby and Fryer study found that children that got the chance to go to a charter school by random chance through the lottery in the Harlem Children's Zone in New York were about 4.4 percentage points less likely to commit crimes uh, when they grew up. Uh, in the Milwaukee study, I followed students until they were about 25 years old, and the kids that got at least four years of the program uh, we're about half as likely to commit felonies and misdemeanors by the age of 25. Here's the uh, Dobby and Fryer uh, New York City study. This is a complete elimination of the likelihood of being incarcerated for male students. As you can see, the lottery winners, none of them were incarcerated. So you can say that this program, or getting access to a charter school, completely eliminated the chance of being incarcerated for male students. They didn't look at crime for female students because females don't commit as much crimes as males do, uh, but they did look at teen pregnancy. One in five of the students in the Harlem Children's Zone that lost the lottery uh, became pregnant as teenagers uh, of the female students. And this was about a 10 percentage point reduction in the likelihood of uh, becoming a pregnant teenager, which is about a 59% reduction in teen pregnancies found in the uh, New York City uh, experiment. School shootings, again, 
This is selection on the dependent variable, as social scientists would like to call it. We're only looking at schools that have shootings. We don't look at schools that don't have shootings. So we cannot control for anything, even if we had the information to do so. This is just observational. Take this with a grain of salt. But it shouldn't be ridiculous to think that private schools can lead to fewer, or private school choice could lead to fewer school shootings because of the competitive pressures to uh, do a better job with student bullying and student safety. But so, for example, what we found from 2000 to 2018 using the Tribune Review database, you can find this on the Cato website too. Uh, there are about 230 shootings over this time, which isn't a lot. Um, about one in every four schools are private. 10% of kids are in private schools, but only 6% of the shootings occurred in private schools over this time period. Um, so that's not a huge difference, but if you look at relative terms, 10 to, 10 to 6 is about a 40% difference in, in relative terms. Uh, so again, we need definitely need more research on this. We cannot say that it's because of the school sector for this particular analysis. It's just an observation. So the evidence suggests that private school choice can lead to more student safety and less crime. And I showed you all of the studies today. There's not a lot of them that exist, but out of all the studies that we have on these topics, they all find that school choice programs and public or private school choice leads to safer students and less crime in the long run. And I would advocate for education savings accounts with a safety mechanism, ESAs, uh, education safety account. I would argue we shouldn't regulate these types of programs if we're going to have them, and I can talk a little bit more about why we don't want to regulate them. There's a few reasons. I don't think we should require evidence of bullying, or at least not a lot of evidence of bullying, because we could unintentionally lead to a society of more victimization um, if we're starting to incentivize students to say, hey, look, you're being bullied, now you can have an, an ESA. So I don't think we should have that requirement. And I'd argue that we should make them universal. You should be able to access this program, whether you're rich or poor, from any type of income or any type of background. Um, and the main reason for that is that markets work best when there's sufficient demand to entice market entry. Um, and I'm really happy to, to be here and listen to the rest of the speakers, and I hope you guys have some great questions for later. Thank you. Great, thanks. Okay. Uh, thank you, guys. Move this closer here. Uh, so thank you for having me, Lindsay, and everyone else's uh, heritage. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm going to be discussing uh, Heartland's Child Safety Account Program in a minute. Uh, I wrote it with uh, Vicki Alger of the Independent Institute. Um, but um, the Marjorie Douglas, uh, Stoneman Douglas shooting was one of the um, impetuses behind it. But another was uh, actually came from Ta-Nehisi Coates. I don't, I'm pretty sure most of you guys are familiar with him. He writes for The Atlantic and best-selling author. He's probably one of the better-known commentators on race relations in the United States today. So he was at the, uh, I think it was like the Aspen Ideas Festival, something like that. And he was talking about um, what it was like growing up in West Baltimore and going to school in the 1980s. And he was specifically, he was talking about all the things he had to be cognizant of and do uh, to keep himself safe from violence every single day when he was going to school. So this is a quote here. Every morning when I got up and got dressed to go to middle school and got my stuff together, there was an entire ritual I had to take myself through. That ritual generally concerned how I was dressed. It concerned how I was going to wear my backpack, whether I was going to strap it over one shoulder or two. How was I going to cock my baseball hat? Was I going to cock it to the left or to the right? Uh, how was I going to wear my pants for the day? Which shoes were I going to wear? Uh, who was I going to walk with to school? How many of those kids were going to be with me? 
uh, where were these boys from? Who did these boys have a problem with at school? Which route were we going to take to school? And then finally, after getting to school, going through that whole checklist that he has to go through every morning, uh, he talked about all the complications being in school itself. Who did he know better than to make eye, eye contact with in the hallways? Um, was it actually safe to go to lunch that day? Should he skip lunch and wander the halls instead or go to the library? Uh, when he left school, how soon after the last bell rang would he wait to leave? Would he risk leaving right away with all the chaos? Or would he wait around for a little bit for all that chaos to clear out? And then on his way home, again, how is he going to get home? Which way is he going to go home? Who controls the area he's walking through? Who is he going to walk home with? And stuff like that. As a student in Baltimore City Public Schools, he said, I would say each day a third of my brain was dedicated to negotiating violence. So imagine what that's like for a second. So imagine all the stress that places on a child, all the mental energy it saps from them before they even crack open a school book in the morning. So it's no wonder that these inner city schools are having such a tough time keeping kids in school and keeping them educated. Now, of course, every public school isn't like a public school in inner city Baltimore, but bullying, assault, sexual assault, harassment are all fairly prevalent in schools across the country. Uh, the Center for D Disease Control reports about 6% of high school students, that's roughly 900,000 kids, miss school at least once every month because they feel unsafe there. Uh, let me run some numbers by you real quickly just to highlight this. According to the Department of Education, there were almost 1.1 million serious offenses during the 2015-16 school year uh, on school grounds across the country. So that's roughly one for every 50 students that attend public schools in the United States. Those offenses included more than 789,000 physical attacks or fights without weapons, 11,900 physical attacks or fights with weapons, 24,000 robberies, including 1,200 with a weapon, 10,100 incidences of sexual assault, 1,100 rapes or attempted rapes, and 5,700 incidents of possession of a firearm or an explosive device. And additionally, the DOE study found that during the 2015-16 school year, there were more than 135,000 individual allegations of harassment or bullying on the, base, on the basis of sex, race, sexual orientation, disability, or religion. And that number is most assuredly too low, as one in five middle and high school students reports being bullied in school, according to the National Center for Education Statistics. So according to DOE, around 10% of students will experience some form of sexual misconduct by a school employee by the time they graduate high school. And 93% of these incidents will take place in a public school. There are estimates that 15 students on average are sexually victimized by teachers across the country each week. And although teacher-on-teacher -teacher acts of sexual misconduct claim more headlines due to their shocking nature and their breach of trust, Student-on-student -student sexual misconduct is far more common. Some scholars argue that four out of five students will experience some form of sexual harassment by the time they graduate high school. An investigation by the Associated Press in 2017 found seven student-on-student -student assaults occurred for every one teacher-on-student assault from 2011 to 2015. And the AP found nearly 17,000 cases of student-on-student -student sexual assault in U.S. elementary and secondary schools during those four years. While these numbers are shocking, they may also be too low, as 18 states don't even track student-on-student -student sexual assaults in elementary and high schools. So how are parents feeling about this? Do they think the schools they send their children to are safe? It's hard to say, but according to Phi Delta Kappa, who does an annual survey on this, and the most recent which came out about a month ago, I believe, 34% uh, of parents fear for their child's safety while they're in school. And that number rises to 48% for parents earning less than $50,000 a year. Now, the good news 
is the Every Student Succeeds Act permits students to transfer to a public school, another public school under the unsafe school choice option provision, but only if the current public school meets the state definition of a per persistently dangerous school. And the bad news is, as Lindsay talked about earlier, that because states define unsafe schools so narrowly, fewer than 50 out of nearly 100,000 public schools are lab labeled persistently dangerous each year. So parents should not have to wait years at a time for their children to become victims of violent crime before they are allowed to transfer them to safer schools. There are numerous legitimate reasons parents seeking to protect the safety and health of their children might, not want, to, might want to move their kids to a different school. In many of these cases, parents can't afford to do so, uh, to enroll their child in a private school, and their children are unnecessarily forced to endure danger on a daily basis. So Heartland's Child Safety Account, or CSA, is a type of ESA program for parents who feel, for whatever reason, uh, their child's school is unsafe. And a CSA would empower parents to transfer their children immediately to the safe schools of their choice within or beyond the resident public school districts, was this including public schools, charter and virtual schools, as well as private and parochial schools. And under Heartland's CSA program, students would be eligible for a CSA account if their parents had a reasonable apprehension for their children's safety based on the experience of the children including bullying, hazing, and harassment. Uh, parents could also determine their child's school isn't safe uh, after reviewing the incidence-based statistics schools would be required to report. And basing students' access to a CSA on a reasonable appreh apprehension standard is justified given the recommendation made by the U.S. Department of Education's Office of the Inspector General, which stated dangerous schools should be defined according to objective criteria and parents would that parents would use to determine the safety of the school. CSAs would help children at risk without stigmatizing schools, and only schools that are pervasively unsafe would lose a significant number of students as a result of Heartland CSA model. The loss of these students and the education dollars that go with them would force these dangerous schools to improve security to keep their existing student body and to attract new students. If dangerous schools cannot manage to institute policies to keep their students safe and a significant number of students leave as a result, then those schools will shut down. This stark reality is the best assurance that more children will be kept safe at school. So who should have the power to determine whether a student should have access to a CSA and move to another school? Uh, states could create sanction boards to handle school safety cases, but this would just add another level of bureaucracy that would unnecessarily delay the process in keeping students safe. Uh, the school districts themselves could never be an impartial arbiter, as they have an incentive to keep the child in the school in which they feel unsafe because of the funding the school district receives for that child. And this is the same is true for the individual schools themselves. And while the local school might have a greater understanding of the challenges facing a child in a dangerous environment, no one has a greater vested interest in a child's success than that child's parents, which is why parents should be the one to trigger a CSA and not school bureaucrats. Parents are a child's best advocate. They have the greatest understanding of what it takes for their child to feel safe, and they are much more likely to have the child's best interest at heart than a state or district official. As things stand now, the education system in the U.S. only effectively allows wealthier families uh, to move their ch child to a safer school when they feel it is imperative. This privilege should be afforded to all families, as every child deserves to have the resources available to allow them to escape an unsafe school environment. CSAs would offer parents a near-instantaneous solution to school safety problems by empowering them with the ability to quickly and easily move the child to the school they determine to be the best and safest fit. Further, CSAs would make parents not some disinterested bureaucrat, the final arbiter of whether a child's school environment is unsafe. Now, these programs would not be a silver bullet solution to the bullying and violence problems plaguing America's public schools, but they certainly would allow all families, no matter their income level, 
much greater access to the schools best suited for their children and their unique safety needs. So right now, we have thousands of students across the, co the country that are frustrated and hurting. They dread waking up every morning and having to spend a day where they are poorly treated and possibly physically harmed. Their parents are hurting for them. They're worried about what the news from school is going to be each day, and they feel exasperated and helpless because they think there's nothing they can do to help their child. So it's time to put an end to this unnecessary status quo, and we can do so by enacting child safety accounts in every state across the country. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Tim. If you could pull up the third uh, presentation, please. Jonathan? Thank you, Tim, and thank you, Lindsay. Good afternoon, everyone. and the research around school safety, what it arrives in. I'm going to say a few words about what's happening in the research community as well as in the policy world, especially when it comes to what's happening with Washington, D.C. and local school safety policies to help provide some context about why all of these ideas are so significant. So to start with, every parent wants their child to be safe. And so the incidents of February 14th in Broward County, Florida, as well as what happened in Santa Fe in Texas. It's a parent's worst nightmare. And so to the families and to the communities that were involved and that were affected by these, um, we can only start by offering our deepest sympathy, right? Only start by saying to these parents that we understand they've lost something that, um, uh, that'll never be filled again. And so uh, that, that grief is something that they take very seriously. And, and as such, as we talk about the policy involved and the way that Washington, as well as local districts, handle school safety, it deserves the utmost uh, sense of, uh, of seriousness and being thorough about what policies are being proposed and how the interplay between Washington and local school districts carries itself out when it comes to school discipline policy. So first, I'm going to explain how Washington does relate to what happened in Broward County, Florida, as well as districts, what's going on in districts around the country. And then second, why this matters because of the relationship of districts around the U.S. and how they view dear colleague letters and guidelines from Washington. And then finally, we'll talk a little bit about the research on exclusionary discipline, which is the fancy term for suspensions and expulsions. So it's a slightly, it's a slightly different area of research than what Corey was covering. But nonetheless, the findings there and the descriptions of what's going on in the research are important to the policy debate and the discussion that we have right now. So first, after the Parkland tragedy, the Trump administration tasked Education Secretary Betsy DeVos with leading a new federal commission on school safety. The commission was given a set of topics to cover before the end of the year, and they'll be releasing a report, or ex they are expected to release a report before the end of the year. And one of those items is the idea of rescinding a 2014 Dear Colleague letter that was issued by the Obama administration dealing with school safety and student discipline. So why does that matter? Well, for starters, providing specific directives on school safety and student discipline is beyond the scope of the U.S. Department of Education or, frankly, any federal office's authority. It's true that federal, federal agencies can issue regulations about how laws are to be interpreted, but as my, one of my colleagues here, Hans von Spakovsky, and others have noted, 
this particular federal letter violated the very rules by which agencies are to issue regulations. So at issue, and I'm going to quote here from something that Max Eden at the Manhattan Institute wrote, he said that Gail Harriet and Allison Salmon of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights pointed out the Administrative Procedure Act stipulates that such a major policy shift must be promulgated as a formal regulation after notice of comment and rulemaking. That's a long way of saying that they should have taken more care in issuing very specific guidelines that are in this Dear Colleague letter. The letter is not just a set of recommendations. The Dear Colleague letter is more than that. And what's the evidence for it? Well, for starters, the letter's provisions mirror Broward County's student discipline policies in its, quote, promise manual. And these are policies that try to limit student suspensions and expulsions, the exclusionary discipline that I was talking about a moment ago. The resemblance between Promise and the Dear Colleague letter is unmistakable. Like Promise, which was adopted by Broward County in 2013, months before the federal letter came out in 2014, the federal letter encourages restorative justice practices, emphasizes limiting student engagement with the police, and says suspensions and expulsions should only be used as a last resort. If that wasn't enough, Broward County Superintendent Robert Runcie even said that his district's ideas inspired the guidance. The federal letter also encourages school districts to have a memorandum of agreement, a memo of understanding, with local law enforcement committing the agencies to working together to limit student interaction with the juvenile justice system. Broward County, in fact, has one of these. So again, this Broward memo stresses the idea of preventing students from coming into contact with law enforcement. The agreement even says that emergency situations that require law enforcement involvement before any arrest is made, those involved should, quote, ensure the least punitive means of discipline is employed. School safety policies and student discipline guidelines should promote safety first, not school reporting requirements about exclusionary discipline. After the events of February 14th, Runcie defended Promise. He said attempts to criticize the idea of limiting suspensions and expulsions, quote, goes with the whole narrative that anything under the Obama administration is no good and we have to get rid of it, end quote. Repeatedly, Runcie denied that the alleged shooter had been referred to Promise. Then, in May, officials announced that the alleged shooter had been referred to Promise, reversing their earlier statement on the issue. But they had no record of the alleged shooter's attendance or that anyone involved in Promise had followed up on the alleged shooter's participation in the program. Thus, officials cannot even report how or if the safety net Broward officials created to deal with disruptive student behavior was able to intervene with this troubled student. So keep these denials in mind and the lack of oversight because the Promise program and the federal letter share many of the same approaches that are being used in places like Oklahoma City, which is Oklahoma's largest district, Los Angeles, Syracuse, Philadelphia, Baltimore, just to name a few. These areas have adopted the measures outlined in the federal letter. A former teacher from Minnesota was quoted in the New York Post earlier this year 
He said that district administrators were handing out bonuses of $2,500 for principals that lowered the rates of suspension and expulsion in their schools. This particular teacher had himself been attacked by a student, strangled, and even given a concussion. So how can the federal letter be just guidance if it mirrors the very policies and provisions in the nation's sixth largest school district's student conduct manual? So let's talk about why this matters in terms of how districts view guidance from the federal government. Dr. Melnick, Shep Melnick from Boston College, he said in an interview with Education Next, he said, what school district wants to ignore a federal dear colleague letter and be charged with violating the law? He uses a great word here. He says, school districts are looking for certainty, right? They don't want to be sued. They don't want to get in trouble with the Office of Civil Rights. Yet it is not the government's, the federal government's, responsibility to be setting school codes of conduct for K-12 public schools. So the third point, we'll move to um, some of um, the research involved in this idea of exclusionary discipline. So we know a couple of things. There is a working paper out of Los Angeles that found that limiting exclusionary discipline had a negative effect on student achievement. We have research out of Philadelphia where research, researchers say that school compliance with policies to limit exclusionary discipline varies widely across the district. However, researchers found either no changes in academic achievement or negative effects among the peers of students who were involved in discipline-related incidents. I'll quote from one of the authors here, a reasonable interpretation of these results is that a policy change prohibiting the use of suspensions has more negative consequences for peers in schools that serve more disruptive students, perhaps because the marginal student who returns to the classroom is more disruptive. One of the authors of this study is a Dr. Matthew Steinberg of the University of Pennsylvania, and he makes a great point about the background to some of the research that's conducted in this area. He says that much of the differences in school discipline meted out to minority students is explained at the school level. He says that the evidence that lends itself to causal conclusions on the causes and consequences of exclusionary discipline is, quote, to use his word, thin. He says we really need to think about targeted responses at the school level. And here's the key point. Much of what we know, he says, about this school level effect has to do with uh, what we know and how we assign students to schools in the United States by zip code. As a result of this student assignment method, he says, particularly in urban schooling contexts, residential location, particularly for minority students, means that these students are coming from neighborhoods with higher crime rates, higher poverty, quite a bit more trauma, and what we are doing is sorting these students into the same schools, and then, he says, concentrating the disadvantage and therefore concentrating the behavioral issues within these, the same school. And as a result, we may be seeing higher rates of discipline in these schools. This has been pointed out uh, elsewhere by the U.S. Department of Education in their indicators of school crime and safety. Uh, Heather McDonald, also at the Manhattan Institute, like Max, Max Eden, uh, points to some of the findings from this, uh, this report. And she points to 
the fact that there are more incidents of violence, there are more incidents of, uh, of bullying and teacher abuse in these schools that have higher concentrations of students from these very difficult backgrounds. And then the same is true from what uh, many people who have followed this issue um, have followed what Max has written about uh, surveys of teachers, where teachers in school districts and areas that have limited suspensions and expulsions report feeling less safe. And they report that the, the classroom atmosphere uh, has become more negative once the school tries to limit suspensions and expulsions. So with that, let me close uh, with, with this last idea, which is from a national survey that's conducted every year by Education Next. In 2015, they asked respondents, so this is a nationally representative survey, they asked respondents uh, to say whether they uh, approved or disapproved of the idea of limiting suspensions and expulsions. And in 2015, 50% of the respondents were opposed to school district policies that limited suspensions and expulsions. And it was nearly identical when they were asked if they approved of local policies or federal policies uh, that, that were meant to uh, limit exclusionary discipline. In 2018, the same question was asked. Similar results were found. No student should be punished just for the color of their skin, certainly. But teachers and school personnel must have the authority to deal with student misbehavior in order to protect all of the students in their classroom. So with that, I'm happy to answer any questions when the time comes and turn it over to John. Yes, ma'am. I want to begin by echoing something Jonathan just said, which is this is a very, very difficult topic to talk about. I mean, you know, if you're a parent, you can't imagine it any more horrifying than getting your child ready for school and kissing them goodbye. Uh, only to discover that that's the last time you're going to see your child uh, alive. So it's just a tough topic to, to talk about. It comes up, uh, this topic, uh, within the parameters of school shootings, and that's what I'm going to focus on. And so I will be excluding, so for instance, other attacks that take place in schools from using other weapons, knives, et cetera, although some of the recommendations about what schools can do to address school shootings would also address uh, people who bring other form of weaponry into the classroom. Uh, and then also, Tim spoke about other forms of violence short of, of school shootings in the form of sexual assaults, robberies, bullying. Uh, I won't address those per se, other than to note that among the factors that are common among many school shooters, in addition to, for instance, having come from broken homes or coming from families that are uh, in facing economic hardship, uh, is that quite a number of them report having been uh, bullied over an extended period of time, and it will contribute to a, a, a breakdown in their mental well uh, well-being. Uh, to put this in perspective, and again, not to make light of anything that has been said about problems of violence in our, our schools, I think it's worth at least keeping in mind that our schools are, for the most part, very, very safe places. And that horrific events like the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting in Parkland, Florida, uh, are still very, very rare Events. So Corey made reference to this. Uh, the Obama Justice, uh, not Justice Department, Department of Education reported in 2015 and 2016 school years that there was, quote, nearly 240 schools reported at least one incident involving a school-related 
shooting. Now, the question they, they asked, the parameters of it were very, very broad. They included accidental discharges of firearms, even if they were lawfully possessed. They included suicides. They included discharges in which no one was injured. But nonetheless, as he also noted, NPR did a follow-up investigation and discovered that it was certainly not true that there were nearly 240 schools. They were able to confirm uh, discharges, accidental or otherwise, from a firearm at only 11 schools. Uh, in fact, uh, my review, along with my colleague Amy Swearer, uh, showed us that that school year there was only one school shooting that involved an injury to somebody other than the shooter himself. Uh, it's a fact that uh, children were four times more likely to be killed in school in the early 1990s than they are today. Uh, they are five times more likely to be killed at home by an abusive parent and nearly 80 times more likely to be killed going to or from school than to actually be killed in school uh, itself. Since 2000, there have been, by our calculations, 25 school shootings in which two or more people were injured, and, or, injured or killed other than the shooter. Uh, that's roughly one and a half incidents per year at our nation's 100,000 primary and secondary schools. Uh, on average, out of the nation's 50 million K-12 students, only 10 will be killed by gunfire each year. Now, obviously, that is 10 uh, too many, but that is not the epidemic that is frequently portrayed in, uh, in popular media outlets. The same, of course, cannot be said for neighborhoods in our, uh, uh, you know, particularly in some of our urban areas throughout this country. Uh, according to the Crime Prevention Research Center, over 50 percent of murders in this country take place in only 2 percent of the nation's 3,142 counties, and usually they are uh, segregated to only small portions of those counties. So uh, somebody is a lot more likely, including a school child, uh, to be injured and killed on the streets of some of these um, urban areas, uh, usually gang-related or drug-related uh, shootings, than they are to be harmed uh, in school. Uh, one of the reasons why there are these sorts of shootings, one pattern that you see is that a number of these young students uh, show signs of, you know, extreme mental disturbances. Uh, according to the Pew Research Center and the Centers for Disease Control, somewhere between 60 percent and two-thirds of all, um, you know, gun-related deaths are by suicide. Uh, which has its own set of issues. It doesn't involve homicide, but, you know, obviously people are disturbed and resort to firearms. And most alarmingly, the CDC issued a recent report that said that suicide rates in this country are up uh, 30 percent since 1999 in virtually every state uh, across the country. Close to half of those who commit suicide uh, were known had a known mental condition. More than half did not, although very, very clearly most, if not all, of these individuals were suffering from some form of an undiagnosed and untreated severe uh, mental illness. I mention all of this because, of course, some people who are depressed and are suicidal and who suffer from untreated conditions uh, are, of course, uh, also prone to kill other people before they consider taking their own lives. Um, 
In terms of the school context, uh, people need to be more attuned to warning signs of distress, mental illness, family problems, bullying, uh, et cetera. There need to be more mental health counselors who are trained to spot these sorts of behaviors in our communities in general, but most especially in schools. Uh, one common characteristic, although it doesn't always uh, happen, the Santa Fe shooter didn't particularly show any signs of distress, but a lot of times young uh, young people will, they, you know, social media use is prevalent, uh, and they will give signs through social media uh, and signs that they are undergoing distress in advance of committing uh, these acts. So, for instance, Eric Harris, one of the Columbine uh, shooters, wrote a series of blogs uh, saying that he wanted to kill anyone who annoyed him. Uh, before killing 17 students at the uh, Parkland City, Nicholas Cruz was sending out signals all over uh, the place. He had, you know, should have been brought to the attention of the FBI, the local authorities. He had bragged uh, to his classmates on several occasions that one day he was going to shoot up a school. He had posted a YouTube video uh, in which he uh, bragged about wanting to become a professional school shooter uh, before killing 32 people at Virginia Tech. Uh, Sung Hui Cho referred, was referred many times to the school's disciplinary process uh, for stalking behavior. He wrote a series of disturbing papers in a creative writing class uh, about a young man who, want, who hated his fellow students and wanted to kill them before he killed himself. Um, people need to be attuned to this, and fellow students need to have some kind of a mechanism uh, or perhaps an anonymous reporting system uh, to report this so that these students can be addressed uh, before there is any kind of, uh, you know, they, they actuate their, uh, what they're thinking about into uh, committing acts of evil. There have been a number of recent reports that have come out recently about things that schools can do to try to make schools safer in addition to having more counselors. Uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott recently released a report, School uh, an issue called School and Firearm Safety Action Plan uh, that contains a number of very helpful recommendations about hardening school campuses, uh, improving school security programs, hiring more armed resource officers, um, uh, perhaps retired police officials or military veterans. And as I say, others have also issued reports. And uh, now, you know, just to make it clear, nobody wants to turn our schools, which are supposed to be uh, warm and inviting, uh, environments in which people can develop their social schools and, and also uh, learn positive behaviors and, and, and feel safe to be educated. Nobody wants to turn our schools into armed fortresses uh, or prisons uh, in order to prevent violence from occurring. And nonetheless, some action ought to be uh, taken. So although, although, and I'll, I'll echo what my colleagues here on the, on the panel have said, that these decisions really should be made uh, at the local level based on the situations in each community and to meet community needs, uh, schools should definitely consider changing their infrastructures uh, in order to make schools safer, uh, perhaps by having a single point of entry uh, into the school, more cameras, uh, internal locks, if appropriate bulletproof glass, a revised fire alarm protocols. Sometimes uh, school shooters have been known to pull a fire alarm. Uh, so that everybody will flood into the hallway, creating what is in essence a killing zone. Uh, other schools have now started changing this so that if a fire alarm gets pulled, 
It does not automatically alarm. It gets sent to a, a central office where one person can see whether or not there is a fire, and they have a certain amount of time to make that determination before the alarm uh, uh, goes off. Uh, and, you know, if necessary, some schools may put in uh, magnetometers. Uh, armed guards are, uh, unfortunately, uh, an important part of what it is that needs to be done. Uh, approximately two-thirds of active shooter situations in schools uh, are over by the time police arrive. The average active shooter situation in school is about 12 and a half minutes long. The average response time for the authorities to arrive is about 18 minutes. Uh, within the past several months alone, uh, there have been several incidents, at least three, in which armed school resources officers have ended uh, a, a live shooting situation. So on March the 20th, the school resources officer confronted 17-year-old Austin Reynolds at Great Mills High School here in Maryland. Uh, this was after Rollins had shot and killed his former girlfriend uh, and a male classmate. The officer shot uh, Rollins and wounded him, and then Rollins turned the gun on himself. Of course, Rollins had a lot more ammunition uh, at the time the officer reacted. On May the 16th, an armed school resources officer shot and subdued a 19-year-old former student, Matthew Milby, who had opened fire at a graduation rehearsal uh, in Dixon High School in Illinois. Uh, because of the officer's very fast reactions, the only person who was injured was the shooter himself. Uh, and on May the 18th, two armed guards, uh, a school resources officer and a Texas trooper, uh, engaged in a gun battle with 17-year-old Demetrius Pagordis, um, wounding him before taking him into custody. And now, as you all know, uh, Pagortis had, uh, before this happened, had shot and killed eight of his fellow students and two teachers at Santa Fe High School, and he wounded 13 others, including one of the officers. Uh, as terrible as this incident was, uh, Pagortis had a lot more ammunition with him and intended to shoot a lot more people. And during that gun battle with the two uh, school resources officers, that gun battle lasted about seven minutes, and it allowed all of the other students in the school to, to leave safely. There's been some talk, far more controversial for understandable reasons, about arming uh, teachers. Um, very controversial, but there is also no question that students, uh, that teachers love their students. Uh, and many of them would, would and have uh, given their lives in order to protect them. Uh, during the Parkland shooting, three teachers were killed trying to protect uh, their students. One of them was the assistant football coach, Aaron Feiss. Uh, he placed his body between Nicholas Cruz and a group of students and absorbed a hail of bullets, which killed him. A, ge a geography teacher, Scott Bagel, had unlocked his classroom door so that a, a whole slew of students could flee Unfortunately, he was not able to relock uh, the door before he was killed by, uh, by Nicholas Cruz. Uh, I'd also add that there are a number of states, including Georgia, Texas, Idaho, Utah, uh, Colorado, that already allow uh, licensed concealed carry permit holders, students, to carry uh, firearms on public schools. There have been some minor mishaps that have happened as a result of that, but no serious injuries and certainly no uh, no deaths. Uh, I would add, though, that great care should be taken before arming uh, teachers. Uh, it's, it's hard enough for trained professionals to go into a live fire situation 
to know what to do so that they had the ability to take out uh, a shooter rather than perhaps uh, having collateral consequences of shooting innocent victims uh, in, you know, in, who were caught in the crossfire. Um, so this really is a last resort, but when all else fails, uh, it's a lot better to have somebody who is armed and trained and has been designated for this purpose to address a situation like that rather than uh, you know, leaving things to chance and, and waiting for the police to arrive. Um, my colleagues have talked about various federal policies uh, that, are, uh, that are involved that make the situation better or make the situation worse, like the Dear Colleague letter making it worse. Uh, Congress recently passed the Stop, Violence, uh, Stop School Violence Act. It has some federal funding and guidance for states and localities about things that they can do, evidence-based things that they can put into place to try to uh, reduce the likelihood of uh, violence in schools. Uh, and frankly, if schools and localities think that this is a high enough a priority, uh, they should supplement uh, that rather than waiting and hoping that uh, some other disaster does not befall their communities. And with that, I think I'll, I'll stop talking and be happy to take your questions. Great. Thanks, John. Before we, while you're kind of gathering your thoughts and uh, before we turn to questions, I guess just for context. So we're sending the 2014 school discipline guidance was thrown out there. Um, flexibility with federal funds was also discussed, um, giving schools more flexibility with how they spend those dollars um, and how they determine to, to advance school safety. We talked a little bit about state level options, advancing school choice uh, through education savings accounts or other, other options. I guess maybe either Corey or Jonathan, can you give us a little context on the extent to which kids currently have choice, regardless of the safety conversation, but how many states, how many kids? So there are 63 private school choice programs in over half of the United States and the District of Columbia. Um, while there's a lot of programs and a lot of, uh, in a lot of states, only about less than 1% of the school-aged population actually exercises uh, private school choice in the U.S. So these programs, uh, though there's a lot of them, are uh, very targeted to the least advantaged in society. Most of them are special needs-based programs. Um, none of them that are in practice are universal right now. Charter schools, um, there's about 3 million children in charter schools right now, uh, probably a little more than that. Uh, but, yeah, that's essentially how much school choice we have today. Uh, and education savings accounts, we only have, what, five um, and they're very targeted as well. Anything you wanted to add to that? No, six, including Nevada, which is technically in law, but, but waiting for funding. Mm -hmm. Great. We'll go ahead and open it up to questions. Um, if you could just wait for the mic to come around if you have a question. Thanks. Uh, Ed Hudgens from the Heartland Institute also. Uh, my, my question uh, concerns resistance to this because I've been interested in these issues. I come from Maryland. I know the Baltimore schools are horrendous. So are the D.C. schools, by the way. Uh, and it seems to me that you, you have a real issue here when you talk about, for example, the Baltimore schools and the need for school choice and safety accounts. And I can see every interest group in Baltimore, meaning the unions essentially saying no way we can do this. I have a friend who runs a bunch of charter schools in Maryland. They essentially got pushed out of Baltimore because, well, you know, your school is safer than all the others and it's taking money away from the government schools and all. So how do you see the battle shaping up? It seems like the parents are going to be 100 percent for this and the establishment is going to be completely against this. 
Great, thanks. Thoughts on feasibility? Well, I mean, I would say in any program that we've seen passed around the U.S., it, political will has to be there. You know, I think there needs to be leadership among state uh, legislators from the governor's office as well. I mean, that, that, that political will needs to be there at the same time that the need is um, something that drives parents to, uh, to, to demand it. So, you know, what, what example comes to mind? Well, Puerto Rico comes to mind, right, at the aftermath of the storm and um, I think the political will that was there with the leadership in Puerto Rico. Um, I think in Arizona, when they enacted education savings accounts, you know, it came sort of on the heels of some court cases that had, uh, well, the creation of a, a school voucher program for children with special needs and then some court cases that, you know, pulled some of those freedoms back. And then, so there, you know, there was also a, a climate, right, where parents were um, motivated to uh, demand that, that sort of change. So, you know, I, th I think we are in a period now where there, you know, it's, it's a, a heightened sense of school security is certainly there. Um, whether or not the, the political will is there is, is something else. Uh, I would just add, just quickly, Lindsay, you know, I, I wanted to say that, you know, when talking about Broward County, Florida, um, there was a group that was um, uh, charged with looking at the situation in Parkland and what happened and explaining it, particularly in terms of the Promise program that I referred to earlier, which was our student uh, code of conduct. And they found, uh, according to them, that there was no relationship between the Promise program and what happened at uh, Stoneman Douglas High School. Um, you know, I would just add that the people that were on that commission and looking at that program were the very same people who were charged with implementing the idea that we should limit suspension and expulsion. And you had the superintendent of the district get up and say, there is no relationship between promise. So, you know, I, I think that the, there are some parents uh, who probably, uh, in fact, I know, think differently about that. And I think anyone who's followed what's been written in the Sun Sentinel, particularly in Florida, about what happened in the aftermath of Parkland, um, Heritage is, you know, our, our resource bank meeting earlier this year, we had a panel, panel and it was in Florida and there were parents from Stoneman Douglas High School that, that came to our event to, to talk about what happened there. So this is very real. I mean, parents, uh, I don't think that they're, they're just gonna buy the company line. Yeah, and uh, we'll head over here. Before we take your question, you know, that's the other thing that the research shows consistently is the number one thing parents look for when they're engaging in the school selection process is safety. And that beats out everything else, academics, extracurriculars, you name it. Safety is first and foremost for families. Yes, ma'am. So with, uh, with regards to, um, I think John talked about it a little bit, um, arming teachers, there's been kind of a a controversy with you know, the New York Times saying Betsy DeVos is going to arm school teachers and obviously that doesn't look great. Um, but part of the, the issue is obviously if you want to give power to the local and state levels, how do they use that funding? And, the, you know, Ed is kind of looking at that right now, but it's how they interpret Title IV funds and how do you guys kind of see that playing out? And should that be something that Congress clarifies or should that just be the Department of Ed making a making a declaration on, yeah. We're, we're just sort of smirking. Because we, we smile because it's been in the news, like right. you said. I mean, that's it's what, what you know, they have been covering and talking yeah, about. Yeah, thinking a lot about that, that Title IV issue, and Jonathan can definitely jump in. But, you know, in, if you read the law, it says flexibility. When they reauthorized ESEA as ESSA, flexibility was what Congress intended to include in Title IV. 
Um, Title IV is a section of ESSA that's the Student Support and Academic Enrichment Grant option. And there's a section that now provides districts with flexibility in how they spend those funds. Um, so there has been some back and forth about the extent to which they can do that. Um, I know there are certain members who are looking to clarify that further. Um, so I can read this to you without anything to that. Just that there are school districts already that have policies that allow uh, not just teachers but school personnel to carry weapons. So they were there even before Washington decided what they were going to do for starters. Um, but then, you know, and, and John, we, we've talked about this. A school district needs to be able to make decisions to protect the people in their care. So they need to be able to make those choices. And so if that's what they feel like is best, then, you know, but with all, I think, of the of the disclaimers that John was talking about, I mean, that training is going to be paramount, make sure teachers are comfortable with doing that, you know, all of those things. Yeah, so I'm not necessarily in favor of Army teachers, but I'm not opposed to it either. I, I think it needs to be, you know, left up to state and local uh, authorities to do that. And, and, you know, if you give them that kind of flexibility, I'm sure they'll be quite creative in terms of the kinds of training that they get. I know that there are various organizations that already put on this sort of training uh, program. You have to have so many hours of, of uh, training, and you have to get recertified every year, and you have to go in for periodic uh, refresher courses, not only in terms of learning uh, what to do and how to react, but actually to go out into a firing range and test your proficiency. Um, and, you know, you give people that kind of flexibility, I think they will do the best that they can to try to protect their students. If there's any more, we've got time for one more question. I'm Clint Laird from the Caesar Rodney Institute in Delaware. Uh, a quick question. is: Did Florida Institute a Child Safety Act? Uh, similar. It was a, it's a tax credit scholarship program for uh, bullied students. Basically, um, it's kind of the same model but a little different in the funding mechanism. But uh, if the, the student has been bullied or, uh, you know, attacked something like that, the parent can uh, uh, choose to uh, take them out and put them in a, a private school. But it's only funded to about $41 million. It goes through uh, sales tax through uh, car sales. So if you're buying a car in Florida, a new car, or a used car. Uh, you can choose to um, donate your sales tax to a uh, scholarship management organization that would uh, pay for the uh, scholarship. Did that, did that happen before or after the shooting? Uh, this was, I think, right, it was either, uh, I, it was during Florida's last legislative session, which ends in like March, so it was February, so it was probably right around the same time. Well, my, my, question, my question really has to go to this idea of creating political will. Mm. If you say, as Lindsay said, if, if the parent's primary concern is, is student safety, and in order to get this ball rolling, you have to have political will, it doesn't seem to me that you're going to need much to break inertia and make this happen. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, I, I, I would, I'm wondering if the various initiatives that are going into schools to, from the outside, like Rachel's Challenge and those types mm -hmm. of things, couldn't be the, uh, the, the the motivation for generating creating the political will to get these types of specific uh, child safety uh, accounts enacted. If anyone would like to comment on that, well, um, I was going to say most. If you look at the polling over the years, um, school choice options, you know, vouchers, tax credit scholarships, um, ESAs are generally fair. Uh, at least majority support uh, popularity with 
uh, parents and, uh, and a higher percentage uh, for parents of lower socioeconomic status, uh, Hispanic parents, uh, African-American parents. Um, I, I think that the parents are there, the public is there. It's just, you know, you have to fight the unions and, you know, the unions have, uh, you know, the teachers unions have a ton of money. They're, you know, uh, I think the uh, National Education Association, uh, the, um, I think it's the biggest uh, public interest group in the country, one of the largest in the country, and they're just well-funded and they're well-organized and they know, uh, they know how to fight these things and uh, it scares off a lot of legislators. So, I mean, I, I, the parents are there. <laughs> right, yeah. No, but I mean, but their, their argument is that it's going to take funding away from the public schools and, the, you know, and, uh, and you know, all that kind of thing. So. Well, great. Thank you for the question. Thank you, everyone, for being here today. Uh, good discussion, very important topic, and glad you're all able to make it. Please join me in giving our panelists a last round of applause. <laughs>